Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real, and grateful to be with you today. Today I want to talk about someone in the Book of Mormon. And I want to give some background to this story because credit certainly goes elsewhere for this discussion. This past weekend, I was at the Salt Lake City 2016 Sunstone Conference. Just incredible. Went there with a group of friends, folks that uh, both had been there as well as others who had not been there ever before. It was my second Sunstone Conference And I was there last year moderating a couple of sessions, but this year I got to participate in four sessions, two on panels, including the Why I Stay session, as well as having done two sessions where I presented my handshakes and drawn swords idea, which you just saw a audio recording in my home of that presentation uh, come out the other day in Having gone to Sunstone, again, just a a blast of fun, so many good things, and it culminated Saturday night with listening to Tyler Glenn play an acoustic version of his song Trash, which was just, just a spiritual feast. It was just an incredible moment, and, and just so many feelings running through my mind. Sunday morning, our group went to a ward in Salt Lake City where Thomas Worthland McConkie is a Sunday school teacher. And for those who know Brother McConkie, having spent a lot of time out of the church in Buddhism, uh, Thomas does a beautiful job of blending some meditative practice from Buddhism in with, in with Mormonism. And just, just does a wonderful job of that and just one of these classes that, that if, if every Sunday school class had a teacher like him, then folks like me would, would see church as just an absolute joy week in and week out. We'd have something just to look forward to. And Thomas does this lesson where he talks about doubt. And he uses Thomas from the New Testament as well as Korahor from the Book of Mormon. And he explains, look, both have doubt. One gets to see the resurrected Jesus Christ and resolve his doubt. The other is arrested and eventually trampled by the people. And he split the two, he split the class up into two groups and had us go kind of to each side of the room. One to be on uh, the side of, of reading and discussing Thomas and then the other to be to take the angle of reading about Korahor and discussing Korahor. And the idea was for both groups to read the text and decide why one person gets the sign he's asking for and the other one gets a sign of being struck dumb and mute and arrested and eventually trampled to death. 
And so we split up into these classes or these groups and, and looked at the, the scriptural text. And what I found as I went through Korahor, and, I, and I've read the Book of Mormon numerous times, and always, though in the past, when I've come across this story, had a black and white perspective. And so Korahor, who is labeled an antichrist in this chapter, I just automatically assume this guy's all bad, and so everything he does is bad, and I toss it out. But the reality is when you really dig in and look at the text, there's a lot more to this story, a lot of truth on Korahor's part. Not to say that he didn't do some things wrong, and we'll get to that, but that he teaches a lot of truth. So we ought to just dive into the text a little bit and and see what kind of things we can come up with. So in Alma chapter 30, it starts essentially in verse 5, gives you a little bit of a backdrop before we get into Korahor, but verse 6 is when he's introduced. It says, And it came to pass that in the commencement of the 17th year of the reign of the judges, there was continual peace. So you get this idea that everything's going well. There's peace in the land. Everybody's happy and content. And then this happens. But it came to pass in the latter end of the 17th year, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla, and he was Antichrist. For he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies which had been spoken by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. Now, a couple things. It's important to note that the person who's writing the story is is biased towards belief in Christ. So they're going to frame the story a certain way. And certainly recognizing that if if certain people who really dislike my work, for instance, wrote about me and the things I was doing, how would they shade that story? How would they bias that story? What would they, what kind of words would they use? How would they describe me? And recognizing that some of that is in this story. And what I want you to do is to kind of try to set that aside as we go through the text and ask yourself, what truth is Korahor teaching? What reason was there for the people to handle him the way they did? And, and then let's also be honest and say, what did Korahor do what did he do that probably went too far, that crossed a line? And so in verse 7 it says, Now there was a law, I'm sorry, Now there was no law against a man's belief, for it was strictly contrary to the commands of God that there should be a law which should bring men to onto unequal grounds. In other words, there's no law in this land that controls what one can believe or not believe. That people were free in the land to believe whatever they wanted. But we ought to recognize in our minds that in the church, as well here in the Book of Mormon, there seems to be a difference between what one believes personally and keeps to themselves, as well as what one believes and preaches out loud. So going to verse 8. For thus saith the scripture, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Which is an Old Testament scripture that they're quoting here. Verse 9, now if a man desired to serve God, it was his privilege, or rather, if he believed in God, it was his privilege to serve him. But if he did not believe in him, there was no law to punish him. But if he murdered, he was punished unto death. And if he robbed, he was also punished. And if he stole, he was punished. And if he committed adultery, he was also punished. Yea, for all this wickedness they were punished. Verse 11. 
For there was a law that men should be judged according to their crimes. Nevertheless, there was no law against a man's belief. Therefore, a man was punished only for the crimes which he had done. Therefore, all men were on equal grounds. And this Antichrist, whose name was Korahor, and the law could have no hold upon him, began to preach unto the people that there should be no Christ. And after this manner did he preach, saying, O ye that are bound down under foolish and vain hope, why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do you look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. And I should stop here and note, I mean, the narrative seems to be telling us, look, there's no law against beliefs. A man can believe whatever he wants, and, and one can only be punished for actual crimes that they commit, any kind of offenses that they commit. And Korahor comes along, and, and he is saying, there should be no Christ. It's one thing to say, like, I really doubt that Jesus is historical. I really doubt that, that this is the case or that is the case. We should acknowledge that it certainly is one step further to be absolute and to say there is no Christ. And and when we use this term antichrist, it doesn't refer to one having doubts. It doesn't refer to one suggesting that some things seem improbable and the evidence isn't strong in these certain areas. Antichrist seems to be a denoted term used to those who strictly say there is no Christ Christ did not come or shall not come. And I often wonder in our faith if we use Antichrist at times inappropriately. But recognizing that Korahor says that there should be no Christ, or at least the author of Alma 30 is accusing Korahor of saying there should be no Christ. I think it's also important to pay attention to Korahor's own words here as we go along. So now Korahor starts preaching. Verse 13, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. Why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. Now, part of this is true. Unless you've seen a divine messenger face to face, unless you've seen God face to face, and I'm totally, I get it. Some of us have had spiritual experiences and we go, wow, that seems to be God. But at the same time, when you recognize the wide breadth of all those who experience those experiences, those spiritual manifestations of feelings and emotion and, and un, unseen answers and the testimony that various people have of their contradicting truth claims within various faiths, I think it's fair for Korohor here to say, for no man can know of anything which is to come. And, and I'm not saying no man. I think he goes a little too far there because he makes the assumption that nobody's seen anything. And I think that's too strong. But I think he's correct in saying that most of us, even those of us who think we know things spiritually, that in reality we really can't know what we think we know. And in life experience, when you step outside of your Mormon shoes and you put another faith's shoes on, you begin to realize very quickly that it would be very difficult to recognize or to explain the difference between a Mormon's known truth of their church being more valid than another faith's member's known truth of their church. 
that how do we explain these contradictory answers and why does Mormonism trump the rest of them? And I think that becomes very difficult to explain. But it's important also to note that Korahor starts off here calling the people, in a sense, fools. And and Thomas makes note of this in the class that we're sitting in, that, that Korahor seems to cross a line. Those who believe differently than him, he is calling them fools or foolish for believing the things that they do. And I think sometimes when we judge our truth to be accurate and another's truth to be to make them a fool, we cross the line. And, and I'm guilty of that at times myself. I seem, as I'm going through this class this past Sunday, and I'm sitting here listening to this lesson, and Thomas makes mention of this, it suddenly clicks for me one of the ways in which Thomas's doubt and Korohor's doubt is different. And I want you to not necessarily look at their words as you compare the two stories, but look at the feelings that you have in terms of their motives. What does your gut tell you? And when I look at Thomas compared to Korohor, my gut tells me, that, that Thomas's doubt is, is inside of him. In terms of what Thomas doubts, he, he has his own personal doubts inside himself that, that Jesus could be resurrected. He hears the apostles talking about it. He, they're, they're telling him that they've seen him. And yes, he's doubting them, but he's doubting inside of himself. Whereas what Korahor seems to be doing is to be certain inside of himself and to be doubting outside of himself at others. So it's one thing to say, listen, I hear what all you guys are saying. I'm just struggling to believe that inside of myself. It's another thing to say, I'm confident inside myself that I have all the right answers. But I doubt that you know what you're talking about. And those two types of doubt are very different. And so again, it to, to kind of be balanced as we look at Korahor, recognize that this guy doesn't have doubt within himself. Instead, he thinks, he doubts the sincerity or the beliefs of others. He thinks others are foolish and they don't know what they claim they know. His doubt is extrinsic, whereas Thomas's doubt is intrinsic. And I think when we can separate those two out and recognize just in our heads, no matter where we stand, no matter what kind of positions we take, no matter the things we've said on Facebook or whatever, to recognize that one doubt seems to be gospel approved and the other doubt seems to be seen as a negative. And in some ways, I very much agree with those two. Verse 14, Korahor continues. He says, Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye say are handed down by the holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your fathers. So again, it's this, it's this mockery or calling foolish the prophecies of God. Now, I totally get it. Again, from Korhor's perspective, there is some valid reason to look at the things that prophets say and to recognize that some of this stuff truly is foolish and not foolish like these guys were dumb. But foolish in the sense that they say things, everybody takes it as the word of God, and in reality, years later, we had disavow some of it. And so some of it was, while I don't like the word foolish, Korahor is right in saying that just because a prophet says something 
doesn't mean it should be accepted. Korahor doesn't seem to delineate, though. He seems to be painting with a very broad brush here and leaving no room for any of the prophecies of God to hold weight or to be true. And he leaves no room for his certainty inside of himself to be challenged. He doesn't have an open heart. And, and Thomas points this out last Sunday that, that it seems like Thomas has an open heart to additional truth, which I think happens when one's doubt is internal, intrinsic, versus one being a closed heart because their doubt is extrinsic. They don't doubt their own beliefs. They doubt the beliefs of others. And so there's this level of certainty that comes in that I think is negative. And Korahor certainly sees the prophecies of the prophets as foolish because he is painting with a broad brush that these things just aren't true. Again, I, maybe I'm repeating myself too much. I just want to be clear that we understand that some things that prophets say are wrong and they need to be disavowed. They need to be acknowledged. They may even need to be apologized for so that we can move on and not have them permeate through the next generation. And our church seems to be very hesitant to take those kinds of steps. When in reality, it seems very healthy that when one has a bad belief or a bad behavior, that we acknowledge it, apologize if necessary, and make an effort to put it behind us so it doesn't plague the next generation. Verse 15, how do you know of their surety? Behold, you cannot know things which ye do not see. Therefore, ye cannot know that there shall be a Christ. Again, I'm okay with Korahor here. He's not posing certitude. He's saying that you're knowing that there's some flaws in that, and we ought to look at that and consider it. When Korahor says, your hope is foolish, I'm totally against what he's saying. When Korahor says, you cannot know things that you cannot see, I'm suggesting that there is some truth in that message. Not not all truth, right? I can't see gravity, but I know gravity is true. That's also not the case. Like in some ways I can see gravity, right? Everything I throw up that doesn't have some mechanism to keep it in the air comes back down. In some ways I can see gravity. And so things that I absolutely see no evidence for, Korhor's right. And sometimes the things we call evidence is not really evidence. And I think it's fair for Korahor to say, yeah, I get it. You feel good about these things. They bring happiness into your life. That doesn't necessarily make them true. That's not evidence in and of itself that your beliefs are right. And I think it's fair for Korahor to call that into question. Behold, you cannot know of things which you do not see. Therefore, you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. Verse 16, you look forward and say that ye see a remission of your sins. But behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your minds comes because of the traditions of your fathers, which lead you away into a belief of things which are not so. Korahor, again, I think hits on some truth, but I think he uses language way stronger than I would want to use. I don't think it's fair to say someone has a frenzied mind. I don't think it's fair to say they're deranged. What he's pointing at is, look, man, you guys are mentally ill that you guys believe this junk. I would much rather pose the idea of a question. How do we discern the truth of my spiritual experiences as valid versus the spiritual experiences of the Scientologist or the FLDS member or the person who believed in Heaven's Gate or 
the Methodist church down the street or the Muslim group in the next city over, how do we discern the validity of my spiritual experiences as completely valid, having led me to the ultimate true church on the earth versus the validity of their spiritual experiences, which are either invalid or their church is just a stepping stone on the path to my church. And their experiences sure are valid, but they're only being encouraged by God and just don't know it yet. They're just being encouraged by God to to move forward. And, and as they move forward, at some point here or in the life hereafter, they're going to be led to my church. We've got to figure out a way to distinguish that. And so again, I think it's fair to call into question these ideas, but, but it should be done in the framework of asking questions and to be open to looking for a good answer to that question. And I've posed this question numerous times online and I don't, I don't ever feel like I ever get a good answer. And so at some point I say, look, what is the probabilities here? And, and in my mind, I deal very much with probabilities. And I feel like sometimes apologetics and other ways of, of working the conclusion backwards, even from the critic standpoint, working the conclusion backwards, sometimes deals with plausibilities rather than probabilities. And I think if we stay focused on probabilities, we're much more in the arena of what real truth is. And I think this comes out when Richard Bushman says the dominant narrative isn't true. He's saying it's not true because the evidence for both sides, the evidence against the dominant narrative being true bears way more f- fruit when it comes to probabilities. So again, I think Korhor goes too far. Verse 17, And many more such things did he say unto them, telling them that there could be no atonement made for the sins of man. Again, he goes too far. He says there can be no atonement. He, he does not have doubt. He is practicing certainty. He doubts the logical, reasonable saneness of those who say otherwise. But every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime." Again, I think he goes too far because there are crimes and there are things people can do that are, are good or bad and that there has to be lines of what we can do to how far we can go before we hurt another and that goes too far. And I think it's interesting as we move forward that often in our manuals and our heads as we pose these lessons, we begin to, because something's going to happen here to Korahor. He's about ready to be bound and taken before the authorities. And I think it's easy to make the assumption that he's being taken before the authorities, and he might very well be, because of his religious beliefs or doubts of others' religious beliefs. But I think if we're going to say, look, he's bound, he's taken before the judges, I think it is fair to to take someone to the authorities when they are preaching anarchy and preaching to others that they are free to violate the laws of the land. And so we ought to recognize that Korahor here on a, on a secular level does cross a line. 
Verse 18, And thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in their wickedness, yea, leading away many women, and also men to commit whoredoms, telling them that when a man was dead, that was the end thereof. Now this man went over to the land of Jershon also to preach these things among the people of Ammon, who were once the people of the Lamanites. But behold, they were more wise than many of the Nephites. For they took him and bound him and carried him before Ammon, who was the high priest over that people. So, I don't, I don't, whoever's writing this article, whoever's writing Alma chapter 30, whoever's writing these words down, this person seems to be very focused on the doubts, the religious doubts that Korahor is putting out into society. That's fine. He, this person, whoever's writing this, lives in one land and is talking as a second or third hand witness to what's going on in the land of Jershon with Ammon and the Lamanites. The, the people of Ammon who were once Lamanites, he, he's speaking away from what's really occurring. He's not there. He's speaking from a distance. And while he's focused on the doubt that Korahor is implementing into the society, I think the reality is if there's any legal grounds here for binding Korahor and taking him before the authority, it's that he is preaching to disobey the law, that there is no law, do what you want, not anything on a religious level. Now, they may be arresting him for something on a religious level. I'm just saying they don't have any sanction for doing so. It doesn't feel right. My gut tells me that that's, that's always going to be an inappropriate response to secularly arrest somebody and take them before the authorities when one is proclaiming a religious belief or unbelief for that matter. But behold, they were more wise than many of the Nephites for they took him and bound him and carried him before Ammon, who was the high priest over that people. And it came to pass that he caused that he should be carried out of the land. So in other words, all they said was, look, you're not going to do that here. Take him outside the, the boundary of our land and let him go. And then it says, and he came over into the land of Gideon and began to preach unto them also. And here he did not have much success, for he was taken and bound and carried before the high priest and also the chief judge over the land. And it came to pass that the high priest said unto him, why do you go about perverting the ways of the Lord? Why do you teach this people that there shall be no Christ to interrupt their rejoicings? Why do you speak against all the prophecies of the holy prophets? Again, they're making this a religious issue when I think he technically, even based on the rules that are laid out in the beginning of this chapter, he's actually free to do that. And so I think in some ways we ought to acknowledge that he's arrested falsely if that's the issue they want to push, if that's the, the charges they want to press upon him that they're wrong for arresting him. Now, if they want to focus on his telling people to disobey the laws or that there are no laws and they can do what they want, then I'm completely on board. Now, the high priest's name was Gudona. And Korahor said unto him, Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances, which are laid down by ancient priests, to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance, that they may not lift up their heads, but be brought down according to thy words. Again, I think Korahor hits on a deep truth here, that in any religious organization, including Mormonism, 
When we put procedures and behaviors and commandments and policies in place as to keep the general populace of membership ignorant, when we shape our history, when we withhold certain things and make a much bigger deal and embellish other things, in order to keep people naive and ignorant to the reality of one's faith, when we do that, we're in the wrong When we do those kinds of behaviors and we keep people ignorant and then they can't use their agency to their fullest because they don't know better, we're wrong. When we require people to make promises to God in order to do or perform certain things, especially if one's asked to give everything that they have to the building up of their faith, and yet that same institution withholds or holds back information so as to keep people from making a completely informed decision to the best of that entity's power and responsibility, then we're wrong. We're limiting people's agency. And so I leave it here for anyone here to judge, whether Mormonism does that or any other group, to judge if Korahor is right, that when we do certain things that limit another's agency to be informed and keep the people ignorant and having them do unquestioning obedience, when we have followers who who are obedient and feel it inappropriate to ask questions, when they feel it inappropriate to, to dissent or disagree against the leader and say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 that leader is teaching this, that's racist. That leader is teaching this, that's homophobic. I won't, I won't believe that, stand for it, push for it, or support the leadership when they do it. Like anytime we keep people from taking those kinds of perspectives, when the rhetoric we use is to keep people following in an unquestioning manner, being obedient in an unquestioning manner, then, then perhaps that religious institution is on the wrong side of things. Verse 24, ye say that this people is a free people. Behold, I say they are in bondage. Ye say that those ancient prophets are true, prophecies are true. Behold, I say you do not know that they are true. Again, I think Korahor speaks two truths here. That when you withhold people from being fully informed of the choices in front of them, in some ways you do keep them in bondage. And when you say that certain prophecies are true, behold, we can't know they are true. When we look back at Mormon history, there have been absolute periods where both the prophets, seers, and revelators thought something was true. The people felt spiritually inspired to agree with them that that such thing was true, only to later have people in the church and leaders in the church disavow those things, even on an official level. Verse 25, you say that this people is guilty and a fallen people because of the transgression of a parent. Behold, I say unto you that a child is not guilty because of his parents. Ooh, that one pokes a little bit. And I find it to be true. That any time we set up anything within our religious faith that punishes the child or withholds them from the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the proposed transgressions of that parent, we are in the wrong. And Korahor is teaching truth here. Verse 26, and ye also say that Christ shall come, but behold, I say that you do not know that there shall be a Christ. And ye say also that he shall be slain for the sins of the world. 
And thus ye lead away this people after the foolish traditions of your fathers, according to your own desires, and ye keep them down, even as it were in bondage, that ye may glut yourself with the labors of their hands, that they durst not look up with boldness, that they durst not enjoy their rights and privileges. Again, I, I sense an underlying truth here, that any time we take advantage of the labors of others to build ourselves up, to, as a faith, become more wealthy and to be able to increase that wealth. And that wealth seems to benefit certain people over others and that we aren't taking the time or the material goods to truly apply in a Christ-like way our resources to those who most need it, then yeah, in some ways we have our people in bondage. Verse 28, Yea, they durst not make use of that which is their own, lest they should offend their priest, who do not yoke them according to their desires, and have brought them to believe by their traditions and their dreams and and their whims and their visions and their pretended mysteries, that they should, if they did not do according to their words, offend some unknown being who they say is God, a being who never has been seen or known, who never was nor ever will be. Again, Korahor goes too far. He says with certainty there is no God. And I think that crosses a line. But again, he preaches some level of truth here. It is a half-truth in this. And as much as we like to say within our faith that Satan is the master of half-truths, the key is if you're able to separate the truth from the air and to say, look, there is truth here. What can we learn from the truth? Not that we're putting Korahor up on a pedestal and praising him and saying, man, this guy was a good guy. Not at all. But to take the truth out of someone's message. And I think even within Mormonism or prophets teaching, there are truths, half-truths and half-lies within our history, within the things our prophets teach. There are, there are truth and there is false doctrines. There are true doctrines and false doctrines. And the better we get at discerning those without, without personally looking at somebody and saying, man, that person was really good for teaching that truth to separate the person from the teachings and to separate the teachings from each other. That again, when we use our religious beliefs to keep a people in bondage who do not know they're in bondage, there is truth there. Now when the high priest and the chief judge saw the hardness of his heart, yea, when they saw that he would revile even against God, they would not make any reply to his words, but they caused that he should be bound And they delivered him up into the hands of the officers and sent him to the land of Zarahemla that he might be brought before Alma and the chief judge who was governor over all the land. Again, it seems like they're punishing him for his religious beliefs, which again, I think goes too far and is legally out of line. Verse 30, And it came to pass that when he was brought before Alma and the chief judge, he did go on in the same manner as he did in the land of Gideon. Yea, he went on to blaspheme. It seems too, as Korahor, as time goes along, he seems to focus less on saying the things you know are foolish and rather saying that we we just simply can't know what we think we know. He seems to be learning from his past experiences in each of these towns that these each of these cities, that as he gets to the next place, he's focusing less on saying you're wrong, but rather that you can't know what you think you know. And at least recognize the strategy on his part, and it's a smart one, but that there is a 
a lack of either either A, he's learning from his experience in a real way, like this just doesn't work, this isn't true, this doesn't hold up, I need to become more honest in how I'm presenting this, or the possibility is that he is not very sincere and is simply looking for this, some sophistry to impose his message in the way that will be accepted by the most people. And we find out later which of these two it is. And he did rise up in great swelling words before Alma, and he did revile against the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. Now, now listen next to what Alma says, and measure this against Mormonism. Measure Alma's answer of of how he disagrees with Korahor versus where where Mormonism is at this very moment and has been through most of its history. And now Alma said unto him, Thou knowest that we do not glut ourselves upon the labors of this people. For behold, I have labored even from the commencement of the reign of the judges until now, with mine own hands for my support, notwithstanding my many travels round about the land to declare the word of God unto my people. And notwithstanding the many labors which I have performed in the church, I have never received so much as even one senine for my labor. Neither has any of my brethren, save it were in the judgment seat, and then we have received only according to law for our time. This is crucial. Do we recognize here that Alma is saying, look, as a leader in the church, I don't get paid. I have been getting, I have been providing for my needs by the labor of my own hands outside of my church functions. Now, Alma is the prophet. He is the chief priest and the chief judge. He gets paid for his secular occupation. But he's saying, me and the other leaders around me have not gotten one C9 for our religious responsibilities. Alma here has a valid argument against Korahor. But this begs the question... And you and I both know that it would go too far to even ask it. So I'll leave it up to each of you in your own minds to grasp, and I think you will very quickly, where I'm going. The question becomes, do we, in the here and now, at a local level, absolute, do we have an argument against this that is valid? And I'll just leave the question in that space for you to think through. Or if Korahor was standing here on this day, in making this accusation, how could we answer this? What would be our response? Because Alma can simply say, what you're saying is not true, man. I haven't made a single penny off my religious responsibilities as prophet of this people. I have labored with my hands, and sure, I got paid for being the chief judge, but that was a secular position. The question is, does this hold up in the here and now? And now... If we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth, that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren? You see, when we're not getting paid for our religious responsibilities, then the only motive we can have is to declare the truth, and that motive cannot be judged or brought into question. It comes off as sincere. The trouble is, is if one gets paid for their religious responsibilities and doesn't provide at the labor of their own hands, 
then all of a sudden motives can, as Alma here is attesting, Alma's the one saying this, not me. Alma's saying that if I got paid for my religious responsibilities, that the people through their donations to the church held up my lifestyle, then yes, you could second guess my motives, but that's not the case with me. Then why sayest thou that we preach unto this people to get gain, when thou of thyself knowest that we receive no gain, and now believest thou that we deceive this people? That causes such joy in their hearts? And and the dialogue goes on. Korahor begins to answer and, and, and begins to get himself in trouble because Elmahir has caught him in in preaching something that's untrue, even when he's confronted with the truth, he continues to hold that ground. And and as this happens, Korahor eventually asks for a sign. And he, he asks for a sign to be convinced. Now remember, keep in mind that Thomas also asked for a sign. And Thomas receives the risen Christ, and Christ says to thrust in thy hand and thrust in thy finger. Christ presents himself wounded for the transgressions of others to Thomas and in no way seems to speak anything negative of Thomas. The comment was made in the class by, by Gina Colvin's husband, Nathan, that, that we should, Thomas is the last person and so he gets this bad rap, but that we ought to recognize that each of the apostles doubted in the same way Peter, James, and John go running off towards the tomb because they don't believe Mary when she comes back to tell them that the Christ is risen. They all hold these doubts, and they're all looking for evidence to prove to them that Jesus is resurrected. Peter himself says, what shall we do? Let's go back to fishing. That, that Well, I guess Jesus is dead. Let's go back to our old lives. And it's just sad that Thomas being the last one is looked at as being doubting Thomas, and it's this negative but in reality, all of the apostles and disciples, for that matter, were doubting. And that Jesus gives no negative impression to Thomas for asking what he's asked. All he says is, look, there are going to be others who are not going to be given this experience of seeing me resurrected. And blessed are they who believe and have not seen. He doesn't say unblessed is Thomas. He's simply recognizing that many of us will have to make that leap of faith without having seen what Thomas saw. And so we ought to see Thomas's doubt and is asking for a sign, not as a bad thing. Peter and James and John, when they run towards the tomb, are looking for a sign. When Thomas asks, he's looking for a sign, and it's rewarded. The, the difference is not in the question or the asking. It's in the motives, in the sincerity, in... Korahor is struck dumb by Alma, by God, for that matter. And after a few days, he goes out among the people and is trampled to death. But but before that, before he's struck dumb, Korahor admits that he knew he knew there was a God, but he allowed Satan to have power over him in terms of convincing him to go among the people preaching that there was no God, there was no Christ, there was no atonement. And so the difference between Thomas and Korahor, besides the inner doubt and the outer doubt, is that Korahor wasn't sincere. He he lacked integrity to his doubt. It seems like doubt with integrity is honored, and doubt with insincerity is not.
That seems to be the difference. As we've gone through this scriptural story today, it's my hope that whenever we read scripture, that we can take that black and white paradigm and set it off to the side and realize that that we've learned that our community has taught us to understand the scriptures in a certain way, that we've been taught to interpret the scriptures in a certain way, and we've been given simple explanations for why people are good or why people are bad, and we've made these assumptions that they're all good or all bad. And I'm simply saying that when it comes to Korahor, that we ought to recognize some of the truth he did teach, and we ought to be open to examining that, rather than just casting someone completely aside because, oh, that guy's a bad guy. Everything he says must not be true. Or that guy's a good guy, and hence everything he says must be true. That guy's a critic of the church, and hence nothing he presents is believable. That guy's a prophet. Therefore, everything he says is the mind and will of God. I hope that this story is an example of how you can parse these things out, and that you can honor the truth in the narratives of those who perhaps don't hold the same ground you hold. It's my hope that each of us, when reading the scriptures, will do what Nephi did, which was liken the scriptures unto ourselves. In other words, as Thomas McConkie said this past weekend, there's a little bit of Korahor and Thomas inside of me. May each of us take each of those stories and the people presented in them and see if there is anything within their mind, in their spirit, in their narrative that we also find inside of us. And can we then learn from that? And can we become better for it? Is my prayer. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.